Boy, lots happened this week, hasn't it? Yes, a lot to bring before the Lord. It's my privilege today to, to lead us in prayer. And um, I'm going to bow my knees, and you're welcome to join me. And once again, God doesn't care about too much about your physical posture as he does about the posture of your heart. So I invite you to join me. Father, thank you for who you are. We focus right now on the fact that you are a healer. You're a God that heals our sicknesses, our attitudes, our relationships. Lord, we ask that we would remain open to that healing today. We pray particularly for our, our nation and that you would um, heal the division that seems so prevalent. It seems so much there. But also help us to realize that you're far greater than any election, any president. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting among us, that uh, whether physical, whether emotional, spiritually, I pray that your healing power will be working in their lives. Uh, bring them to yourself. Know that they're loved today. Know that they're cared for by your marvelous beauty and your hand in their life. And Lord, we pray for our church that um, you would also heal as well. We pray specifically for Anthony and pray that your, your hand would continue to, to guide him, to heal him and his family and that he would continually seek your face, your help at this time. Again, Lord, I pray for our president, our new president, that um, he would be a person that would be able through you to bring healing to this nation. I remember the words of Abraham Lincoln, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work and to bind up the nation's wounds. And may we as Christ followers respect, stand behind, and follow our new president. Doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything he says or his policies. Lord, we want to uh, respect who he is and what he's trying to do in our nation. May we look to your work. May we take it seriously, um, your work and your word in our life. May we apply it diligently and may we live it convincingly to others that we encounter this week. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I worked in the human resource department for many years. I was a bivocational person. I had two vocations. I was a pastor, and I worked in recruiting. That was my specialty, and I did it for a long, long time. The last part of my uh, career... I worked in a healthcare environment, and one of the things you have to do in a healthcare environment is 
you have to match salaries. <laughs> uh, for example, somebody coming in and hired hundreds of people and the salary that the person would be coming in and the amount of experience that they had for the particular job that they had, I had to match them with who was doing the same job in our organization, getting the same salary for the same amount of years of experience, right? Because you don't want to hire somebody in at a higher rate than somebody already did the job because that's not fair to the person sitting in the seat, right? But it's also not fair to hire somebody at a lower rate and have them come into the job when someone who's doing and has the same experience is getting paid much more than you are. So you can see that there's a, a sensitivity, to say the least, around equity. And obviously you can see what some of the problems might be. For example, I often got uh, hiring managers that wanted me to hire somebody either at a lower rate than someone doing the job or at a much higher rate than someone's doing the job. As a matter of fact, one incident, I had a, a very high-level manager who wanted to hire somebody who, number one, wasn't qualified for the job, and they wanted to give them a 75% raise. I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. Well, they didn't like that. They just do what I tell you. I said, well, no, I, I have to be equitable in our hiring practices. We are under restraint of the law around this. We can't do... Well, he wasn't hearing anything of it. And of course, what he did is he went around me and went to the assistant vice president who I reported to. And of course, we already discussed this and he had my back on this. Um, and tried to hire this person. And of course, uh, we didn't let it happen. But you ever happened to you in, in equity, in salary? or inequity in your finances in some way? In other words, you've been cheated or you've been employed in an unfair way uh, that you seem to come into a situation and, uh, gee, everybody's getting paid more than I am doing this job. Uh, or, or maybe it's um, not just money and financial issues that you seem to be cheated out of, but it might be the fact that you're a minority. And you're earning a living at a considerably lesser rate than somebody who's white and doing this job. Or, or a woman. And that's often the case. It still is the case that women are often paid less money for doing the same job that a man does. You ever been in that situation? Yeah, I can hear that scream. Uh, you ever been in that situation where you've uh, uh, been mistreated that way? All I have to say is the name Bernie Madoff, right? Well, we all know who we're talking about. The Ponzi scheme king who ripped people off of their retirement savings. You ever wonder what God thinks of that? You ever wonder um, or cry out to God and say, you know, why is this happening to me? It is not fair. Um... Well, God has something to say about that. And he has something to say to those who cheat others, to those who use their wealth inappropriately. And that um, is found in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. If you turn there. James chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 6. 
Come now, you rich. Weep and hollow for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have, have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be an evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in luxury, in self-indulgence, you have flattened, fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You are condemned, you, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Real positive passage today. Getting lots of encouragement from it. <laughs> um, this, that's the issue with expository preaching, by the way. Um, when you come across a passage like this, you can't skip it. <laughs> if I was doing topical preaching, I would never preach this passage, probably. But in expository preaching, you have to handle the entire word of God as the passage unfolds. So what's going on here? Um, well, Jewish believers um, were being mistreated. They had been scattered from Jerusalem, if you remember from the context of James, and they were being financially oppressed. For example, in verse 4, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept backed by fraud. So they were keeping back their pay in some capacity and, and, and uh, not paying them what their wage was. In verse 6, it says, You have condemned and murdered the, a righteous a righteous." people, righteous person. They were being treated unjustly. The passage is addressed directly to unbelieving rich people who were oppressing the poor. Note, he doesn't say brothers in this passage, like in all the other passages in this. So what James is doing here, while he's writing to, to these believers, he's, he's taking on the role of an Old Testament prophet. If you notice it, it's kind of declarative that way, that the tone of it is very much of a prophetic declaration of judgment. And his point is, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And he says to them, come now, you rich. Now, like I said last week, it's kind of like... Uh, in our vernacular term, it would be like, get real. Get real, you rich. Weep and hollow for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's saying, he's warning them that judgment is coming upon them. The rich have left God out of their lives. And as much as um, we, you might see them enjoying their wealth. James is saying here, you should be weeping and you should be wailing. And he goes into very specific things about the judgment upon them. 
What he does here is he gives four reasons following why judgment is coming upon those who misuse wealth. There's four reasons. And I think we can grab some application from this for our own lives as well. The first reason that judgment is coming upon those who misuse wealth is because they have hoarded it. Look at what it says in verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted. Um, your garments are moth-eaten. It's as if they have stored all of this stuff up and they have a closet full of clothes and it's all, they're all moth-eaten. Uh, moth they're, they're hoarding it to themselves. Um, in the ancient Near East, wealth was measured by my clothing. Not unlike us today, you know, if you see somebody well-dressed, whether a man or a woman, you obviously look at them and immediately say, well, they're pretty well off. Um, but they also measure wealth by, by food, by what's stored up, their grain and their barns, uh, and by precious metals, and we still have that today as well. Um, so but today we measure our wealth not only by those things, but, but by bank accounts, by the equity in our homes, stocks and bonds, by retirement funds that we have. And of course, if you compare our wealth in America to the rest of the world, we are the rich of this kind of passage because we are far more richer in the United States than any other place in the entire world. And he's speaking here, and notice, in the present tense. And he's saying that judgment is coming, but he says, uh, your riches have rotted, uh, it's past tense, but it's happening now. The, the idea here is that the judgment that's coming upon you is so real that it's going to be as if it's happening now. Once again, kind of a prophetic voice. The prophets often did that kind of thing. They said that judgment was coming, but they talked to them as if it's so sure it's happening right now to you. And what he's saying here is that... Um, uh, their wealth is worthless because it's hoarded. It's, it's greeted, it's gathered, it's, it's kind of kept to themselves. Their, their clothing is moth-eaten. Their silver and gold are corroded. Well, but silver and gold doesn't corrode. So what's he, what's he kind of saying here? Well, it's as if they're holding on to this gold and silver with their little sweaty palms <laughs> and it's eating into their flesh. The kind of the figure of speech here. And the point is that silver and gold are no better than a rusty nail to you. That's kind of the idea of what he's saying when he states it that way. Why? Because they're hoarding it. Because they're keeping it for themselves. Wealth is uh, not only worthless, but it's going to stand as a witness against them. Notice this in the second part of verse 3. Uh, the, their corrosion will be evidence against you. It's as if um, wealth is going to stand up and be a testimony of what you've given your life to in judgment. You've heard of the term that money talks. It will in the judgment. It will in the day of judgment when Christ returns. There will be a judgment upon which the rich, the unbelieving people, have hoarded their money. It's not only worthless, and it's a witness, but it's also going to work against them. It will 
eat your flesh like fire. Again, the idea of a, of a gold bracelet eating into someone's flesh. He's pronouncing upon them an unbelieving people uh, who's, who live their lives um, and have all of this money for themselves. They think that money will take care of everything in this world, but in reality it will not take care of them in the next at all. Judgment is coming upon these rich people because they have oppressed the, for, uh, the poor and they are going to encounter judgment because they have hoarded their wealth. Now the second reason that judgment is coming upon those who have misused their wealth is because they have cheated people who have helped them get that wealth. In verse 4, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They left God out and they decided to cheat the poor. They started to, to withhold their wages, decided to um, get stingy, find out ways and loopholes in which they can cheat people out of the money that they had, that they earned. And the cries, the cries of those people have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's again a very prophetic image. Remember Moses, who was called to the burning bush, and, and the Lord says to him, the cries of our people in Egypt has reached my ears. In other words, he, he hears them. It's an intimate concern for the injustice that's happening upon them. The title itself, Lord Sabaoth, is used in Isaiah chapter 6, where the Lord was high and lifted up, the sovereign ancient Near Eastern king over all of the earth. And he hears the cries of the poor and the unjust in this world. And he is coming to judge the rich who have taken advantage of them, who have hoarded their wealth, and who have cheated people out of their money. A man thought he deserved a well-earned uh, raise, and so he asked his boss for this raise. And his boss, a, uh, a Scrooge type of man, said to him, you know, you don't work as hard as you think you do. There are 365 days in a year, right? Well, you sleep eight hours a day. That's 120 days. Minus uh, 365 minus 120 is 243. How many days you got left, right? Um, you have another eight hours of, of family time, and that's another 120 days, which equals 100, 123 days. And there are 22 Sundays that you don't work, which will bring it down to 69 days. Uh, Saturdays, close, we close at noon. That's 52 half holidays, which brings it down to 26, which equals only 43 days left. And we allow one hour for lunch. That's 16 days in a year. That means it brings it down to 27 days. We give you two weeks vacation. That's 14 days. That leaves 13 days left. And you have 12 holidays. That leaves one day left. And with all the coffee breaks that you take, you probably owe me money. <laughs> That's what rich people do. Rich, rich people that want to swindle people out of money. And that's what was happening to them. They were being defrauded of their wages. And that's why judgment is coming upon them. But there's a third reason 
why James says that why judgment is coming upon those who misuse wealth. It's because they live in self-indulgent pleasure. Verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The idea of luxury is the word means kind of extravagant wealth. Um, it's the idea of going soft as well, losing a moral fiber that often money can do. When you accumulate a lot of money in your life, you kind of your moral fiber deteriorates as well. And it's self-indulgent. It's wasteful excess. You burn money up and it's wasteful and it's excessive. You act like it's all that there is in this world is money. And uh, I'm very close with somebody who uh, lives this way. <laughs> um, he's worth a lot of money. He has a, a, a ton of money. And I asked him, I don't know how much he had, but I asked him, you know, why do you, why do you, what do you do with your money? And I had curious about what you, and I said, well, why are you saving it all? He said, I just like to have it. Okay, so he's hoarding this money. And he's acting, of course, he's not a believer. And, and of course, uh, none of your neighbors are probably not believers. And they're out there water skiing, perhaps, behind their yachts. And we need to realize that if you don't have anything to go to, this world is all you have. And we can't really blame them. If we were in their place and we had money, we'd probably be doing the same thing. Someone said that um, for the believer, um, or for some people, the earth is the closest thing they'll ever get to heaven. But for the believer, the earth is the closest thing we'll ever get to hell. You see that perspective? The way people look at wealth. And, of course, excess, it's a, that's a relative term. You know, when I was growing up and, and betraying my age here, getting a TV was like, ooh, you were rich. Of course, I remember getting a PC was like, wow. That's pretty rich to get, too. And if you notice, everything we have in this world that we have, in this country, I should say, is excess compared to what the rest of the world has. And he says that they have fattened their hearts. The image there is of, is of cattle that is being fed for slaughter. The point is that they're spending money like there is no tomorrow. They have left God out. And thus they spend their wealth on themselves. And they hoard it. They hoard it to themselves. And they cheat people out of it. And they live it for themselves. And they're going to be judged for that. And there's, but there's a fourth reason why judgment is going to be coming upon those who misuse wealth. It's found in verse 6. Because they trample down righteous people. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The idea of murder here could literally mean murder, but it also probably is a figurative speech of, of crushing people, of grinding people down, of condemning them. And they're helpless. They can do nothing about it. They're defenseless against the riches attack upon them. Nice happy message today, isn't it? 
The ungodly rich of this world who financially oppress the poor will be judged. Pretty sobering. God isn't just interested in justification. He's interested in justice. Especially those who oppress the poor. Why? Because they have hoarded their wealth and they've wasted it. Because they have taken advantage of people who have helped them gain that wealth. Because they have wasted their wealth on self-indulgent living. And they have opposed and ground down the righteous person. Let me uh, give you some observations that I've come up with here as I thought about this and how it can relate to us. Um, first of all, uh, if any of you have a lot of money, uh, your heart might be beating a little bit faster right now. Um, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with wealth in the Bible. Abraham was a wealthy man. Job was a wealthy man, and it was restored to him. Barnabas, in the New Testament, was a wealthy man. He owned land. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Solomon, of course, was a wealthy man. So it isn't how much money you have. It's your attitude. It's your mindset. It's your perspective on what you have. Now, the implication on this is even poor people can be materialistic. I've seen that, where people don't have a, two pennies to rub together, but they are so greedy, so materialistic, so focused on getting stuff and things over somebody else. And they're poor because it isn't the amount of money you have. It's the attitude that you have. I like what Paul said to a young pastor, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6.16, he says, 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now don't miss that last phrase. Who provides for us everything to enjoy. So what I'm not saying here is we go out and we whip ourselves to death and we sell everything and we take a vow of poverty. You don't think the scriptures support that. And I don't think this verse is saying that we need to do that. If anything, he's saying what you have, then you are to enjoy what you have. But it's about the attitude towards what you have that's important. Because I think subtly uh, in the church, we, we can become very materialistic about our lives, about what we get, what we have, the stuff that we have, we drag around with us. <laughs> um, we can become very materialistic about it. And so... There's some questions that I want to just give out to you that I've been meditating on and thinking about in my own life, but um, that might help us to determine if we are being materialistic or not in our life. First one is this. 
Do we expect money to do only that which God can do? You know what I mean by that? There's a sense in which, do we get our identity from our wealth? Uh, are we getting significance and purpose from how much stuff we have? Because that's something that only we need to turn to God for uh, and not to wealth. Um, how contented are we when, let's say, we're going to be in a certain particular financial situation, and yet we have an opportunity for advancement. Maybe you're in an apartment now, and you're saving up money and to, to per, perhaps purchase a house. How, how is your contentment during that time as you're saving for that thing to come? Um, I think that says something about our attitude towards it. Nothing wrong with saving, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But, but what's our attitude towards it? it? Are we contented, or are we so discontented about our situation and where we are and how we're going to move forward that what happens is we get distracted from it? For example, is there a conflict? When, you're, when there is a conflict between gold and God, our wealth and God, um, does the more stuff you have decrease God's influence in your life? And it's something to think about. That sometimes we can get lots of stuff and, and what will happen is sometimes, if we're not careful, is that we can allow that stuff to have a greater influence on us than God himself. Um, and if that's the case, we probably are developing a very materialistic mindset. Are you hoarding money and stuff? Or are you saving it? Because there's a difference, right? The difference is hoarding is you're saving money for the sake of having it. It's like my friend I was talking about. You know, I asked him, why do you have all this money? You know, and you, you, what are you going to do with it all? And he's like, I just want to have it. That's just hoarding it. Um, when you save it, you can save it for biblical reasons. And the scriptures certainly teach the fact that we should save money. Save money for our children. We save money for our retirement. We should save money for, for others and to invest it in other people's lives. By the way, can I just give you a real practical thing that my wife and I do? We have an envelope, and, or actually kind of an envelope is what we use, but you can use a bank account if you want to. And, you know, you, you pay your bills, and I know it's tough right now in COVID uh, not to have any kind of extra money for anything. I understand that very much. Um, but when you do have extra money that comes in, what we did is we kind of just stuck the money in an envelope. Now, granted, we, our intention with the envelope was to give it to somebody sometime or somewhere, whatever, whenever the need came up. And so that... Whenever you encounter someone, whether in the church or outside, that needs, that needs money and, or needs, needs help, you've got something right there that you can use, and you have the capacity to meet a need of somebody. Because if we don't think about it, it never really happens. Just a little idea for you to think about. It doesn't have to be a lot of money you put in there, but whenever you have some extra money, just, just put it in there. And with the, with the acknowledgement, Lord, given the opportunity to give this to someone at some point. Uh, I think that it's actually really cool because what you find yourself doing 
is you're looking for opportunities for it. You're looking for ways in which you can help others. Um, so the issue here, once again, isn't how much money you have, but it's the attitude you have towards it. And according to James, in this passage, it's it also how you obtain it. Are you defrauding people when you get it? Or how you spend it? Are you spending it on yourself? James is directly addressing the unbelieving rich people, and indirectly to us, that um, if we leave God out of our money and what we do with it, um, or we use it to mistreat others, to swindle other people, he says that judgment is coming. So what's the cure for this kind of materialism that can step into our lives? I think the rest of 1 Timothy 6 tells us in verses 18 and 19, um, and he's speaking of rich people, are, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up, notice the same kind of phraseology, storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The cure is, is to do good with what you have, with your wealth, and not to hoard it, not to store it up for just the sake of having it, but because when you give it away, you are actually storing it up for a reward to come in the next world. You suddenly, when you do this, you suddenly become in tune with an attitude, with a mindset of the next world. And James wants to tell them that this is what you need to know, church, that judgment is coming. And it's perhaps one of the most important um, principles in all scripture. Because to know that judgment is coming is a very important aspect that gives comfort to those in this world. That there is a just God who will execute judgment. And we really take that to heart. We'll never be a victim of what the world does to us. Because we acknowledge that the world is unfair. The world is out to swindle you. The world is out to oppress and to take because they're self-consuming. When you know that, you're not going to be victim to it because you know that's the way the world is. But because judgment is coming, the, the righteous judge, will, the Lord of hosts will come into this world and make all things right. So what happens when we're mistreated unjustly financially? What do you do? You get angry, don't we? Uh... We get mad about the fact they got ripped off. In a sense, chapter 4 is all about people who leave God out of their life. Uh, when we do that, when we leave God out, we, in the first part of chapter 4, we have conflicts and we have quarrels among each other. When we leave God out, we judge each other. Uh, and when we leave him out, we leave him out of our plans for life. So when you get angry, uh, because you're being, being mistreated, we begin to look for justice in this world. And James' response and promise to us is that 
judgment and justice is coming. They might get away with it here, but they will not get away with it there. To be slow to anger, be slow to anger, for judgment is coming. Maxi Jarman, who was the CEO of Gnesco, was a wealthy Christ follower. And for many years, he gave millions and millions of dollars away to people. And then one year, his company had terrible issues with its profits, and it lost a whole ton of money. And he um, didn't have much money left. And he was asked one time, are you sorry that you gave so much of your wealth away? And he said in response, no, you don't understand. What I gave away, I have. What I kept, that's what I lost. Great perspective, isn't it? What we give away, we have, ultimately. And what we hoard and keep to ourselves, we lose. Let's pray. Father, um, difficult words, difficult passage. Um, but you know that you have something to say to us in this and about how we handle the wealth that we have. And Lord, we know how wealthy we are. And we ask that we would not hoard, but that we would invest in people's lives, whether it's finances, money, whether it's time, whether it's uh, um, talents uh, that we have, gifts that we can give to others, because there's so many ways in which currency can be used for your glory, and we ask that we would be able to do that, that you would empower us to see opportunities to invest, and Lord, keep us from from hoarding, keep us from certainly cheating other, other people and defraudment. Um, may you work on our worldly perspective. May we not be pulled away so easily from, what we, from, from you to what we have. Uh, because, Lord, what we give away, we ultimately have. And what we keep to ourselves, we will ultimately lose. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.